20 years ago, controversial former Tory MP Neil Hamilton and his TV personality and self-styled British battle-axe wife Christine found themselves at the centre of a media storm. They were arrested over false rape allegations. Their accuser was a woman with an appalling criminal record and a history of making false allegations, but whose claims against the Hamiltons were taken seriously by Scotland Yard. It was a case that I covered extensively at the time and which embarrassed Britain's biggest force. But did detectives learn from the case, which was similar in so many ways to the Met's more recent shambolic Operation Midland inquiry into the claims of Carl Beach, a.k.a. Nick, who made bogus allegations of VIP abuse and murder. Christine, first, what are your recollections of the day itself when you went to a police station in East London to be formally arrested? Because you were at a funeral that day, weren't you? It's seared on my memory, the whole episode. But yes, the day itself, we'd been to Frank Longford's funeral that morning at Westminster Cathedral, an absolutely magnificent, full-blown Catholic funeral. And we had told Louis Theroux, who was filming with us, to meet us. He didn't know where we were going afterwards. We had just told him to meet us behind the cathedral afterwards. I'd imagine that during that funeral service, it might have been difficult to take your mind off your appointment at the police station later that day. Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, you, everybody tries hard during any service of that nature to think why you're there and the person for whom you're there and their friends and family. But yes, it was extremely difficult because I didn't know exactly what was around the corner because at that stage, we had just been told that there were these allegations of sort of some sort of sexual impropriety. We, the word rape had not been used and obviously in our wildest imaginations, it never crossed our minds that we were going to be accused of that. And what about you, Neil? Because obviously you were used to the rough and tumble of politics, but this presumably was a completely new experience for you and you're going into the unknown. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. Nobody had ever accused me of rape before. And uh, it, it was, well, actually it was rather surreal, I think. I could hardly believe that this was happening because to us, I mean, the story, insofar as we knew it, was preposterous. We had no idea who was accusing us or in what circumstances. And the whole thing just seemed so inherently preposterous that I could hardly believe the police would take it seriously. So although we had to take it seriously, on one level, I was thinking, well, this is absurd and we'll soon clear it out of the way. Your accuser, though she wasn't named for quite some time, was a woman called Nadine Milroy Sloan, who we'll sort of talk in more detail about a bit later. But you didn't know who your accuser was. And of course, it would later emerge that she had close dealings with one Max Clifford, the late, disgraced publicist. Yes, indeed. It was he, in fact, who told her to, as we would now call it, sex up the story. Uh, the story that she'd originally come out with to the police, or at least to Clifford, was that you know we, we had just been engaged in smutty sexual banter and so on on the internet and 
we'd been behaving in a way which would no doubt cause us embarrassment, but uh, was in no way criminal. I think Clifford said to her, or actually her uncle, I think, who was the broker between her and Clifford to begin with, well, this is all very interesting, uh, but I, I don't think it's worth a lot of money to uh, Mr. Fayed, whom he represented as well, and she was trying to get some money out of him for this story, in addition to any embarrassment or worse that it could cause us through the police connection. And that's where you know, she came back within, I think, 24 hours to say, oh yes, I've suddenly remembered actually we were raped. It was that absurd. Just a bit of context here. Two years previously, in 1999, Neil Hamilton had sued Mohammed Al-Fayed for libel. The Harrods boss alleged Mr Hamilton had received money and favours in exchange for asking parliamentary questions on behalf of the department store. The case drew huge press attention as Mr Hamilton denied the cash-for-questions allegations in court. But on December the 21st, 1999, the jury decided in favour of Mr Al-Fayed. Neil Hamilton has failed to restore his reputation and now faces financial ruin. The Hamiltons left court pledging to go on with their lives. They said they would try to pick up the pieces and rebuild. They're not the only losers. Mr Hamilton had financial backers who will also have to share the huge legal costs. When you left the funeral service to go to the police station, you had Louis Theroux and a TV documentary team in tow. Can you just explain why Louis Theroux was there? Well, it was, with hindsight, it was most fortunate that we did have Louis Theroux. We'd signed up to do this documentary with him, and the agreement was that we would spend 14 days, not necessarily consecutive, with him, just recording what we were up to. And you see, by then, a lot of time had passed. We were now on the 10th of August, and the first phone call that we had had from our solicitor telling us that the police had been in touch with him was, was on the 19th of July, so a bit of time had passed between then. And she had apparently made her first allegations to the police on the 5th of May, so a lot of water had gone under the bridge. And by then, as I say, we had signed up to do this documentary with Louis Theroux and we hadn't told him what we were doing that day because we thought the element of surprise for him would be, would be good. And of course, we didn't actually know exactly what was going to happen. So we were not prepared for quite how horrific it was going to be later on when we heard how serious the allegations were. But as far as Louis was concerned, I mean, let's be frank, it was a gift from heaven for him. He had been in almost at the start of, of what became an enormous news story and he probably couldn't believe his luck. And Indeed, I know he couldn't believe his luck, he said so. Do either of you recall what his reaction was that moment when you said we're about to go and get arrested at a police station? Well, because we told his producer what was going to happen, he had the camera trained on Louis as we told him where we were off to and why. And uh, I think it's fair to say, you know, his jaw dropped to the floor. He just couldn't believe it. I'd taken the decision quite deliberately to take the BBC film crew with us because I wanted to have a record 
of what was going to happen because I knew this was utterly preposterous and that the police were behaving like complete idiots. Christine, what happened when you actually got to the police station? You arrived, I presume you had your lawyer waiting to take you in or was with you. We had our solicitor with us, Michael Coleman. And so the three of us went in. Louis and his producer hung back deliberately just in case there was anybody else around. But the place was completely deserted. Nobody, but nobody saw us go into the police station. So in theory, nobody should have known we were there. We first of all, we were taken separately into a small room and that is where we heard the rape allegation for the first time and we were formally arrested and accused of rape then we had to go through all the rigmarole of going to see the sergeant at the back desk as it were and you know i had to hand over the contents of my handbag there were some dramatic scenes over that i was in a pretty fragile state to be honest i was a combination of concerned and frankly absolutely furious at the way we were being treated. We were being treated like criminals. At one point he said, if you don't calm down, I'll lock you in the cell. Well, excuse me. At the same time you were in the police station, other officers were searching your homes, weren't they? Were you told about that at the time? What we were told, which was possibly one of the worst aspects of the whole thing, was that the police had already... About the time we were arriving for the funeral, two o'clock in the afternoon, the police had already set off from London in a minibus, five of them, up to our home in Cheshire. And they had a warrant to search our house, the sort of warrant, it's called a Section 18. It's the sort of warrant that, frankly, you use to immediately clamp down on a drug dealer or some, you know, when you need an instant access to clamp down on somebody's belongings, etc. They had this warrant to search our house, seize anything they wanted, and of course there was nobody at home. So I had to phone my mother, who was then uh, 86, I think, and she was expecting us home for the weekend. And I said, no, I'm sorry, and by the way, I'm in Barkingside Police Station. Neil and I have just been arrested and accused of rape, and will you please go around to our house, let the police in, they'll be here in half an hour, and you have to allow them access to whatever they want, and they can take whatever they want, you cannot stop them. I mean, can you imagine having to do that on a line in the police station, surrounded by policemen, no privacy, no nothing? So my poor mother, who is actually more than a match for any number of policemen, jumped in the car and off she went. I, I was allowed to phone a mutual friend to say, Jeff, will you please go around and look after her? Uh, so there were the two of them there with these five policemen. They took our computers, they opened every drawer, every cupboard. I mean, they checked the deep freeze. I mean, it was unbelievable what they were hoping to find, goodness knows. And at the same time as that was going on, we were stuck in the police station, imprisoned. Another, we don't know how many, two or three, whatever, had gone to search our flat. I had had to hand over the keys to our flat in London. I had nobody to ask to go and be there. So goodness knows what went on in the flat. And another five searched our car, which was in a car park near where our solicitor lived. So the total police man hours was just mind-blocking looking for something that obviously wasn't there. Neil, you were interviewed first. What sort of questions were you asked and how upsetting was it for you individually? Fortunately, because uh, we had a very experienced solicitor with us, before I answered any questions, he insisted on pinning the police down on 
what Milroy Sloan actually said to them. For example, you know, what time of day did this alleged incident take place? And you know, in what circumstances did she come to be in the place where the alleged offence occurred and so on? And it became apparent even before I answered a single question that the police couldn't even answer the simplest of uh, questions, which they should have asked Milroy Sloan even before they even contemplated uh, issuing a warrant for anybody's arrest. You know, the story was full of, of holes. The allegation was that in May 2001, if I remember rightly, that you and Christine had raped her, indecently assaulted her, and that you'd, you'd met through an internet chat room. Quite a novel thing in, in those days. That was the allegation. And she said that uh, the other chap who found himself in the headlights as well, his name was Barry Lahaney, uh, he'd spun her a story that for some reason he was our chauffeur, which of course he never was, we've never had a chauffeur. She then confected on the back of this <coughs> a sex party in a council flat and uh, Christine and I, both of us, had been involved in sexually assaulting her in various ways, ultimately culminating in a rape. So all I could say is this is absolutely untrue from start to finish. It's just pure fantasy. At that stage, were you given details of her real identity? We were told uh, who, who she was by Detective Superintendent who was in charge of the interrogation. He said, a lady by the name of Nadine Milosevic alleges on the evening Saturday the 5th of May 2001 at a certain address she was raped and indecently assaulted. She states she had conversed via the internet and email with yourself and Mr Hamilton and another man by the name of Barry Lahaney. Uh, some of these emails stated you were in the process of getting a divorce, which was completely untrue. She alleges she was held naked with her back to the living room floor and rape, etc., etc., etc. You know, this is all, of course, completely untrue. We had never, ever met uh, Milroy Sloan, and I don't think we'd ever even been to Ilford. So uh, it was just lies from start to finish. Christine, what were your feelings towards the police at that stage that they were taking these allegations seriously to such an extent that you were formally arrested? I wondered what the hell was going on and why Neil was in so long. I'd had to go through the interrogation by the doctor and then finally in I get. And there is our solicitor, Michael Coleman, who was incredibly professional, obviously professional, but he was superb. And he'd already told us that we weren't to give them anything, tell them nothing. They had to prove anything. They were the ones who made these allegations, etc. And it actually became more and more ludicrous. And as the questioning went on and we gave our replies, and of course I was aware that they would have asked Neil near identical questions and so they already knew what the answers were. It became absolutely ludicrous, but I was also aware that, you know, somebody can make these allegations and unless we can positively disprove them, it isn't enough just to say it didn't happen and no, we weren't there. We had to positively disprove them and there in the police station, completely isolated, just us and the police and our solicitor, we had no way of knowing how we were going to be able to disprove these allegations because by then several months had passed. How were we supposed to, on the 10th of August, know where we were on the 5th of May? Ask anybody. You know, and we couldn't answer. I don't know. All we know is that we weren't there. 
We had no access to a diary or anything like that. So it, the possibilities of what might happen were always at the back of my mind. But I think, to be honest, towards the end of whatever it was, over an hour of being interrogated by the police, I think I began to realise that they didn't believe it. You were both eventually allowed to go home after several hours of questioning, but your ordeal wasn't over yet, was it? By the time I came out of my interrogation, Neil and Michael Coleman, our solicitor, was wondering what on earth was going on because I'd been in there for so long. And by then, of course, they were aware, which I was not, of the press outside. So they had realised, and they'd had over an hour to work out the strategy, that there was no way this was not going to be widely reported. There was no way we could just you know, go away and try and sort it out privately. And so we had to go out and face the the pack and it was one of the worst few minutes of my life it really was it was horrendous it's it's said that mr and mrs hamilton uh, were in a flat in ilford um, when a young woman was raped this allegation has been denied absolutely by mr and mrs hamilton um, they have cooperated entirely with the police investigation and have supplied the police with detailed um, information as to their whereabouts throughout that day and throughout that evening have any charges been put uh, no charges have been made against any person and certainly no charges have been made against either mr or mrs hamilton are they still I take police it, mr. Hamilton, bail you deny this we deny this fabrication absolutely yeah. categorically who do you think tipped off the press that you were there? It wasn't in Louis's interest to tell anybody else what was going on. He had a scoop. Why would he tell anybody? So he clearly didn't. We obviously hadn't. So you do wonder who knew we were there. I mean, they were all outside by the time we emerged. Every single, you know, press outlet you can imagine, television cameras, there was an absolute posse outside. It was horrendous. Because of the privacy laws and the libel laws today, if that same event happened today, what happened to you and Neil 20 years ago, quite possibly you wouldn't be identified. You were both named, obviously. Um, she, at that stage, was known as Miss X, a 28-year-old divorced mother of two from Grimsby. So she was able to make these awful allegations against you. But she, at that stage, had anonymity. But she did weigh that anonymity, didn't she? She sold her story to, I think, the News of the World for £75,000, cashed in on her false allegations. And then we knew who she was. And, you know, some basic research revealed that she had a history of making false allegations and wasting police time. And some of her close relatives didn't speak highly of her, to put it, to put it mildly. Well, she'd accused even her own grandmother of, uh, of some of appalling crime as well. So she, she was a thoroughly bad lot. Uh, and the police had all this on record. It was just that there was the Lincolnshire police. And so, somehow or other, the Lincolnshire police records weren't accessed by the Metropolitan Police. If they'd known that she had a history of making false allegations, maybe they wouldn't even have got off the starting blocks in our case. But the, you know, the police would obviously get on to these tram lines, and we've seen this through the Operation Midland exercise and many, many other uh, absurd and disastrous cases mishandled by the police. 
that once the process is set in motion, you know, it's like Kafka and the trial just carries on unstoppably. Well, I think it became pretty clear that the, the, the Metropolitan Police didn't do much due diligence on her, and if they did, they didn't take that into account when they formally arrested you with all the damaging consequences that that legal process has. No, the police were, if I can put it politely, boneheadedly stupid, and uh, ultimately it was hugely embarrassing and expensive for the police. But it was worse for us as the victims of all this. Our lives were put on hold for several months, uh, and it deeply unpleasant, of course, to be the front page headline story on every newspaper in the country, every news bulletin, every broadcast news bulletin. And of course, the internet in those days was in its infancy compared with today, but nevertheless, it was still um, everywhere. As far as the rest of the world is concerned, it's all entertainment, isn't it? But it's our lives uh, that were the subject of all this, and we were just like the uh, Christians to the lions in ancient Rome. What has never been satisfactorily explained to me, and I have my own theory as to why this happened, but what changed? This girl goes to the police on the 5th of May and says, I have been, let's just use the word, assaulted by the Hamiltons. What would you do if you were the police? We were then a high profile couple. People knew who we were, which to my mind is obviously why she invented the whole thing in the first place. But what would you do if you were the police? Would you not go straight round and say, where were you last night? That would be the obvious thing to do. If there was the slightest suspicion that there was anything in it, where were you last night? They did nothing. If there was not enough evidence then, even to sort of come to us and say, where were you? What changed between then, when the police clearly didn't believe it, or they would have come to find us, what changed between then and the 19th of July, when our solicitor was phoned and said, we are going to arrest the Hamiltons? What a change. You did have an alibi. Phone records proved that, and uh, the decision to arrest you was disproportionate and unnecessary. It could have been, well, it could have been dealt with in a far more low-key way, and uh, all the sensational headlines and the ordeal that you both suffered could have been avoided. Yes, we had a dinner party in our flat in Battersea on that evening, and we were supposed to have been at Ilford in the East End at five o'clock in the afternoon, raping Miss Milroy Sloan. To get back to Battersea for a dinner party at seven o'clock would have been absolutely impossible in the circumstances described by Milroy Sloan. So we had a record of this because we had a visitor's book, which everybody signed with jokey comments about the evening, etc. So we would have calmly uh, flown back by helicopter from Milford, uh, sat down to our dinner party, which Christine had suddenly rustled up at five minutes notice and served uh, as though nothing had ever happened uh, earlier on in the day. That just shows the level of absurdity that the police were prepared to accept in, in order to try to stick false charges upon us. I'm reading here an article I wrote in September 2001 after you had both been formally cleared and the police had spent three months investigating these allegations so not, not like Operation Midland 16 months and two and a half million pounds plus 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 but nevertheless it was a long time to investigate something which very basic detective work 
and due diligence would have raised you know, huge concerns over. Well, I mean, the investigation clearly consisted of nothing more than the police scratching their heads of how to deal with this, because there was no investigation. It was not possible to do an investigation, as the only people that uh, could have given them any evidence which would inform a decision to arrest or not to arrest were Christine and myself, Milroy Sloan and Barry Lahaney, because nobody else was present at the alleged offence which never occurred. Uh, and they didn't speak to us. What they should have done, as Christine said, is speak to us as soon as possible after Milroy Sloan made these allegations to them in order to see if it was physically possible for her allegations to be correct, which of course it wasn't. Your accuser had previous convictions for assault, using threatening words and behaviour and burglary, and also a history, a track record of making false allegations. It is extraordinary that the police spent three months investigating uh, her allegations, irrespective of the fact that you had a cast iron alibi for the night of the alleged offence. Clearly they'd done nothing. Uh, they hadn't even uh, researched the police computers about her. You know, somebody with a criminal record like her, um, it's all there on file somewhere. And that should have been the starting point, surely. But uh, nothing, nothing whatever seems to have been done. They just sat on their hands. There was a scathing internal report into this investigation into you, and one of the officers, senior officers in that case, uh, sued the Daily Mail over a front page which included details uh, of the findings of that internal review. Uh, he lost, I'm glad to say. If we had lost that case ourselves, it would have cost the Daily Mail three and a half million pounds, as it was our legal fees paid for by the Police Federation were over a million pounds. That's a matter of public record. Uh, he lost that claim. But no one was held to account over what was, you know, a really shabby investigation. And you, you did receive an apology, didn't you, from the Met? That's correct, isn't it, Christine? We received a visit from somebody called Peter Clark, and he came round with a sidekick. And we had a verbal apology. We've had nothing in writing or anything like that. We had a verbal apology. Basically, he was very polite, etc., and he explained that, yes... In my language, obviously not his. We messed things up and we're very sorry, etc., etc. Well, I mean, thank you very much. And Christine, I just wondered, as a woman, what was it like to be accused of a crime like this? How do you feel about it now, looking back? What I find so horrendous about the whole thing, I mean, what that girl tried to do to us was bad enough and... What Max Clifford tried to do was even worse because he frankly should have known better. She is deranged and goodness knows what she is. But what she actually did to the wider community is far worse because every time somebody cries wolf like her, it makes it that much more difficult for a genuine rape victim to be believed. And she didn't give a damn about genuine victims. She was frankly just a money-grubbing, inadequate person not only had she done it before, she actually, she went to prison on our account, as it were, for seeking to pervert the course of justice. She got three years, she was out in 18 months, and she then did it again. She made false accusations about a young man who actually spent three months on remand because of her. The police still hadn't got the message about her. They still believed her lies. And, I mean, it is appalling, the wider implication of what she did. 
And I wanted to ask you about that because this is very relevant to today and the ongoing issues around Operation Midland, uh, the lack of accountability thus far in the police for grave errors. You know, two judges have said that the uh, the police broke the law. Six former Home Secretaries have, have called on the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, to order a new investigation. What's really sh- shocking for me, and I'm interested in your views on this, is that Yes, it happened 20 years ago, your your arrests over bogus allegations, but where is the corporate memory in the Metropolitan Police to learn the lessons from your case? I mean, surely, you know, such a high-profile fiasco, yet the Met did it again in relation to the allegations made by Nick, a.k.a. Carl Beach, in Operation Midland, including false allegations against your friend Harvey Proctor. Well, something we were told when um, Peter Clark came to see us with his apology was he said that they had changed their uh, arrangements within the Met so that the next time a high-profile person was accused, it would immediately be picked up out of the hands of the normal run of police, as it were, and put into a special unit so that this sort of thing could not happen again. I mean, we were obviously accused because we were in the public eye. You know, she would not have picked us out off the streets, as it were. So they made this decision. So they told us that the whole situation, anybody of note in the public eye, it would be treated differently and it would be taken into some sort of special unit. Well, Operation Midland, as you say, I mean, you can't get more high profile than the people who were caught up in that. I mean, it was absolutely horrendous and we were completely aghast when that was going on obviously we knew the inside story about our friend Harvey Proctor who we'd known for for decades he and I were at university together the forcible spitting up of our family unit has been very hard to stomach and the suggestion to my friends that I could not be trusted with children uttered by a senior and plausible sounding police officer was particularly hurtful And we knew perfectly well that it was all rubbish as far as he was concerned. And we simply could not believe that the police were blundering on and on and on. And the news stories about all these other people, hugely high profile, unbelievably high profile people. How could the police not see that this was just a pack of lies? Neil, what would you like to say on those comparisons between your ordeal and what Harvey, Lord Bramall and Lord Britton's widow went through during Operation Midland? Well, in a way, I mean, those allegations were even more preposterous than the allegations against us. The idea that Edward Heath, a former Prime Minister, Field Marshal Lord Bramall, the Chief of Defence Staff, Uncle Tom Cobley and all, uh, were all part of a conspiracy to commit offences on young boys uh, on the face of it is utterly ludicrous and absurd. And if it were to be followed up seriously, would give rise to screaming headlines even bigger than the ones that we had. You would think that the police would, uh, in their own interests, uh, have done the absolute maximum to establish some basic credibility to this story before they embarked upon it. But of course they didn't. They just carried on. And it just carries on happening today. Uh, it is impossible to fathom the depths of stupidity and incompetence which um, characterises them. Christine, I wanted to ask you, in terms of the accountability of the police, because no heads rolled over what happened to you, Lady Britton, I recently interviewed for the Daily Mail and for this podcast, she spoke about a lack of moral compass. 
But I think a lot of this comes down to culture. And one of the things that interests me is, is an outcome is the uh, police appear to have a culture which is cover up and flick away. Those are very Thorthright comments, and, and, and she's very unhappy. She made it clear that no one has been held to account over Operation Midland. I wonder what your views are on that as someone who's been on the receiving end of false, ludicrous allegations yourself. I mean, my heart goes out to Diana Britton. I mean, what she has been through is just literally unbelievable. But no, she's absolutely right. I mean, take, for example, Mike Veal, who was the chief constable of Wiltshire, uh, who was in charge of the allegations against Ted Heath because, of course, his home was in Salisbury in Wiltshire, you may think that he would never rear his head in the police again. But, oh, no, he ends up being chief constable in, I think, Cleveland. So there is seemingly absolutely no accountability. Heads should have rolled because of what happened to us. As I said earlier, the, the time lapse between when these allegations were originally made, nobody thought to do anything about it. And then suddenly they did. I mean, that has never been explained. Somebody is responsible. They all gang up together and shield each other. So who is shielding who in, in this Operation Midland? I mean, it is absolutely grotesque what has happened to those senior figures, some of whom died without their names being cleared. It shouldn't happen in a goodness knows what sort of country, but it certainly shouldn't happen in this country in the 21st century. It is just outrageous. The police are out of control on these things. The most senior officers in these cases, once it becomes clear that the game is up as far as they're concerned, they retire on their gold-plated pensions, which can't then be removed from them and nothing further happens because the police don't have any powers once somebody's left the force. This has got to change. We've got to establish some mechanism whereby criminal negligence of the kind that we're talking about here, I would describe it as, has some consequence for the individuals who are responsible for wrecking people's lives on such an epic basis. And Christine, can I ask you this? In relation to what happened to you and Neil, are you more angry about what Nadine Milroy Sloan did or about how the police responded to her allegations? You both today seem pretty angry still, 20 years on, which is a long time. Where's your anger directed? I don't feel actually now any anger any longer towards Nadine Milroy Sloan. She, she's clearly got mental issues. I mean, you, know, you go to prison for three years, you serve 18 months, and you then go out and do exactly the same thing again, accuse somebody else. I mean, that is not normal behaviour. But the police, yes, the police should really well have known better. The police should either immediately have investigated her allegations at the time or they sh should have just dismissed them and done nothing about it. Of course I do. The police should, should know better. The police should be better. It, it doesn't require rocket science to see that these allegations, or it shouldn't have done, could not be true. And yet still they blunder on. They just blunder on as though they're determined to get a conviction. Obviously they missed a few high-profile people and they were under fire for missing people like, go on then, Jimmy Savile, and in fact, as it turned out, Max Clifford. So they were absolutely determined to get a scalp, and that seemed to me to, to shut all reason out of their behaviour. Now, if the police cannot be relied upon to use logic and reason and, frankly, common sense, then we are in a sorry state. So in essence, as far as you're concerned, in relation to the lessons of your case, not learned in relation to, to Operation Midland? If they haven't learned anything in the last 20 years, and if they haven't learned anything from 
the, the biggest fiasco of modern policing, which is Operation Midland, uh, then they're uh, incapable of learning anything. The police actually uh, very often turn out to be a public menace. That's a paradox, isn't it? The police are there supposedly to protect us. They actually became our persecutors. You've been listening to a Mail Plus true crime podcast with me, Stephen Wright, with thanks to Neil and Christine Hamilton for sharing their story.